Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. Well, today we're going to continue where we were last week, and uh, we are looking at this theme, Chase the Lion, and really uh, prompted by scripture in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, and uh, further expounded in a book called Chasing the Lion by Mark Batterson. And uh, I I went to preparing after last week for this weekend, and I went to go and get my book out because I thought I want to just complete it as a two-parter, and I couldn't find my book because my 17-year-old had been in the message last week went off to soccer tour in Cape Town, and he thought, I want to chase some lions on the soccer field. So he took my book. So I'm going to do the best to bring across what it was emphasizing. And that's just a a wonderful testimony from Ambly of what it means for my 21-year-old daughter, who I still see as my little daughter, to be stepping into a new continent on her own to go and chase some lions with the confidence that against all odds, God is going to work in her and through her to achieve things that are beyond her. And uh, we need to live with that confidence and with that uh, expectation and belief that God is wanting to do that in our day, uh, in this day, and in our lives. And so last week we looked at running to the raw, running to the place that seems dangerous, yet is the place where destiny unfolds. And this week I'm going to look at fighting for your dreams, because I believe that part of the running to the raw is not just to get there and wonder what's happening, but to have a dream. And maybe that dream is for social justice, God's goodness, His kindness to be made evident where there's traffic and, uh, trafficking that there can be redemption. There's a dream that He's put within each of our hearts that is His desire He's placed within us that we get to live out. And we're going to look at Eliezer. And uh, he took hold of a sword till it froze to his hand. And in the same way, we get to take hold of dreams that God has placed within us until destiny takes a hold of us. And so we're going to spend some time just expounding that in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And before I do that, if you remember last week, we chatted about Benaiah getting into a a pit on a snowy day to kill a lion. We saw this other chap, Shammah, who liked this patch of lentils and was willing to fight hundreds to defend it. He wasn't going to retreat when an army came against him. We saw um, Josheb, one of David's other mighty men, who with a spear, 800 to 1 odds, took on the enemy. And so there's these challenges of what it looks like to do mighty exploits that God is calling us into. But they often come in the place of disadvantage when the odds are against us. And there's a secular study that was done in the 20th century by a man named Alfred Adler. And he proposed this counterintuitive thought pattern that he called the theory of compensation. The theory of compensation. And he said this, what we think of as disadvantages are often proved to be advantages. We think they're disadvantages, but they are actually proving to be advantages because they force us to cultivate abilities and attitudes that compensate for those seeming disadvantages. And if we hadn't faced those situations, those abilities and those attitudes would have just been dormant. He said it's as we compensate for those perceived disadvantages that we discover our greatest gifts. Now you're thinking, George, I don't know about that. It's a whole lot of big words. You've just tried to throw a study in but let me just bring a bit more clarity. In the study, he went on to say 70% 
of the students who were involved in the study, he discovered as art students had optical um, anomalies. They had problems with their sight, 70%, yet they had a passion for art. Would have seemed a disadvantage. He also found that many of the greatest composers from history, Beethoven, Mozart uh, included in that, had degenerative hearing issues, and yet they still loved music. They didn't allow the disadvantage to hold them back, but rather they engaged and they were able to actually see it as an advantage. There's an author by the name of John Irwin, and he wrote a book that was called uh, The World According to Garp. You might have seen the movie. It was with Robin Williams many years ago. And for that book, he won a National Book Award. But then he went on to do a screenplay that was called Cider House Rules, and for that he won an Academy Award. Why this is quite interesting is because um, this chap, John Irvine, wasn't the best student in English. He was actually a C-minus student, and that was him overachieving. He said that he was uh, placed within the, he had to do an extra year of high school. He had to do, uh, I think it's four instead of three in the US, is that correct? Or five instead of four? Doesn't really matter. It was an extra year of high school. Uh, and even with that extra year, he's still only placed in the bottom third of graduating students. But here's the thing. How many of those other students have won an Academy Award, even though they would have been perceived to be better at English? How many of them have won a National Book Award? Uh, not many, most likely. But how did that happen? You see, his teachers had said he was lazy, but the actual fact was he had the disadvantage of uh, uh, he was being dyslexic. And so what he would find is when the other kids would go and study, what would take them up to an hour would take them three, four, five, six hours. But he kept persevering in the midst of that. He would study longer, work harder, and a work ethic was cultivated within him that he said ultimately propelled him. Because here's the thing, if you're going to do anything well, you don't just do it within your capacity, you've got to extend your abilities. He was saying then it's when we start to step beyond ourselves and step into the more that God is calling us into. And you all have gifts and abilities as you're sitting here today. I want to encourage you, you have gifts and abilities that you aren't even aware of. And they're often buried beneath your perceived disadvantages. And it's in those disadvantages that your dreams are playing hide and seek. But you've got to have the courage to start to look there, to go there, to discover what's going on, and not to just say it's a disadvantage, but say, Lord, where is your advantage in the midst of the situation where the odds seem against me? And we can see this outplaying with David and his mighty men, even as we've been looking at. So let me zoom out and paint this picture of what David was facing. You see, Saul slept in a palace, but David had the seeming disadvantage of sleeping in a cave. Saul's army were well-equipped. David's army, not so much. We heard the story, as I mentioned, of Benaiah last week, who had to actually take his club, go up against an Egyptian warrior, take that warrior's spear to kill him. They weren't armed as well as their enemies were armed. Saul's army ate and feasted on silver platters in the palace, where David's army had to hunt and kill everything that they ate. I mean, you would think they were at a supreme disadvantage, but they had to work harder. They had to apply themselves more. They had to allow themselves to build strength. They had to think more clearly with more strategy and more smartly. There were these ways that they were starting to engage with what was advantage and the seeming disadvantage. Let me give you a random fact. My son, Mitchell, he loves Alexa. We bought one of those back from the US. Uh, it's like Siri on steroids. 
uh, but not as good as ChatGPT, I would presume, if you're going that way. But anyway, he sits in front of Alexa, and he, uh, we actually love it. Because the car rides, I mean, we get bombarded with all sorts of questions. Uh, but when he's at home, he asks Alexa, hey, Alexa, what is, and uh, he finds out all sorts of random facts. So let me give you a random fact uh, as I speak about Little Mitch. The brains of wild animals are 15 to 30% larger than do their domesticated counterparts. So the brains of wild animals are 15 to 30% larger than their domesticated counterparts. Why? Well, let me explain it from my own household. I've got a dog called Minnie, a remarkable animal, incredibly engineered. She's a jug, which is a mix of a Jack Russell and a pug. You don't just come across that by accident. You've got to really try and uh, discover the wonder of that. And uh, my dog's name is Minnie. And here's the thing. If we don't feed Minnie, she is so well-disciplined. If we don't feed her, feed her, she won't eat. She'll just die. That's how much she's respectful and honoring of us. But when we put a bowl in front of Minnie, she will show up and she starts to gobble and it's the best 40 seconds of her life. But a wild animal has to forage for food. It's got to fight for its meal. It's got to apply stealth and cunning and all of these uh, other things. The only time Minnie has to fight for food is if I'm eating a bit of biltong and I drop it and it goes under the counter and then she's doing somersaults and trying to get under there and you would think that this little dog is deprived of everything and anything. But a wild animal gets stronger and smarter because it works harder and it has to find its food. That's what we're talking about, about compensation theory. And we're going to see how that plays into grace. I'm going to get there because many of you might be think thinking, but it's not about our activity, but the activity of God in and through us. And that's 100% correct. But that is accentuated and accelerated and is maximized as we start to lean in and partner with what he's doing. You see, with David's mighty men, they seem to be at a disadvantage, but it's those seeming disadva disadvantages that created the stage for them to be displayed as heroes. It's David going up against Goliath that I said before last week. That wasn't a moment to see if he could kill a giant. That was the stage set to reveal to the world that he was a giant killer. And it's the disadvantages that create the stage for the supernatural to take place. For Josheb, the disadvantage was 800 to 1 odds. For Benaiah, it was a 500-pound lion in a pit on a snowy day. For Shema, it was being in a lentil patch and, a, and an army coming at you while your own army retreats and saying, you know what, I am holding the line, I am not moving. Seeming disadvantage that becomes advantage and mighty exploits told of what God can do through men who are a rabble yet commit themselves to a cause and allow God to work powerfully through them. This is what's on display through these st stories. The stage is set for the supernatural because here's the thing. Destiny isn't just revealed on sunny days. It's revealed on snowy days. Destiny isn't revealed when everything is going your way. It's revealed also when everyone is retreating from you. Destiny isn't just revealed in your natural gifts and abilities. It's when you start to take hold of something in God and saying, Lord, even though I don't see the evidence of this thing yet, I believe you placed a desire and a dream within me and I'm not gonna let go of it. I'm gonna hold on to this dream you've placed within me until you and destiny take a hold of me. You see, there's something that shifts when we allow ourselves to get active in the grace and the call and the desire and the purpose of God. 2 Samuel 23, 9 to 10 says this. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodar, the Aohat. 
as one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastimum for the battle. I love this. He's with David. They're taunting these Philistines. When they're in, don't, don't taunt if, if you're not going to stick around to fight, or at least if you're going to taunt, taunt, you better be, what is that word? When I say it, it's just got weird in my head. You better be ready to run and get away from what's coming. Then the Israelites, it said, retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. I love that. Sometimes in tiredness, we'll drop it. But he held on to it till it froze to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Wonderful friends he had alongside him. They, they came for the, for, the, for the glorious part of picking up the spoils. So I want to speak today about five ways to fight for your dream. We've spoken about running to the raw, and now I want to say fight for the dream. Fight for that thing that God has placed within you, those desires that, are, uh, that you find within you. And we're talking about fighting for a dream, and here's the thing. It better be a dream that's worth fighting for. You see, Scripture tells us to fight the good fight of faith. There are many fights that aren't good, they're not faith, and often they're based out of fear and insecurity and personal agenda, and not trusting the Father, so we've got to make it happen in ourselves, and so we start these fights, we pick these fights. Let me challenge you with this. If you succeed at the wrong thing, you have failed, but if you fail at the right thing, you have succeeded. I'd rather fail at the right thing than succeed at the wrong thing. My dad always used to say this, and I remember he had a ladder the one stage and depicted it, but Steve Covey said this, so often we can get busy climbing the ladder of success. It becomes our only focus and our only aim, only to get to the top and realize it's been against the wrong wall the whole time. We don't want to be doing that. So before you go after your dream, you need to make sure that it is the right one. You've got to define what success is for you in God with the dream you're going after, because if you don't define that, Culture, your peers, News 24, and any other statistical thing you might be looking at is going to try and define your goal, your dream, your desire, your future, your destiny for you. So you've got to start to do that in God. And I've, I've said this before, and I'm going to repeat this. I, I heard, I can't remember for a Spurgeon or I can't remember who the preacher was. I just heard it this week where I'd been at a meeting with a bunch of other pastors, and, and someone was saying that one of them had preached the same sermon for like five weeks in a row. And they said, when are you going to start speaking this or preaching this? And he said, when you start getting it. Amen. And so I'm going to repeat this successes for myself, not just for you. Success is when those who know you best what? I've said it before. Good thing I'm repeating it. Success is when those who know you best respect you most. When those who know you best respect you most. You see, here's the thing. David's mighty men had incredible stories told about them of the exploits they had done. And these stories had gone all throughout Israel and now famous for those stories. But here's the question. What does it mean to be famous in your own home? Mothers and fathers, what does it mean to be famous in your own home where there's stories of the exploits of what God's about in and through your life that are told there? They don't have to be told from stages. They can be told across countertops and shared and enjoy it together. You see, Eliezer figured something out in this dream that he was fighting for. He figured, this is what he figured out, and this is what we have to figure out. He figured out what he was willing to die for. You've got to figure out what you're willing to die for. Married couples, here's a great tip. Family's a great tip. 
I want to encourage you after the service, I should have had them here to give out, but get a post-it note and get a pen. And put on your mirror or the first place you look when you wake up, write this, choose your battles wisely. That is excellent counsel for marriages, for, for families, for parenting, for anything that might happen. Choose your battles wisely. Because there's some things we uh, would be willing to die for, but there's some things we're not even willing to suffer a paper cut on that post-it uh, post note from. I mean, I know this because myself, Leanne, and Amberly, my daughter, were having a conversation in the coffee shop, uh, not coffee shop, at our, at our um, kitchen table yesterday, and you would have thought we were fighting battles we were willing to die for. I'm going to expose myself. I'm taking down everyone with me. <laughs> and you look and you think, you know, I, I, I literally can't, um, can't, can't remember what we were arguing over, but I'm sure Leanne will remind me after the service. <laughs> but uh, there's certain things we don't want to... Uh, George, be clever here. You're picking the wrong battles. Okay, let me get back where I was saying. Okay, every one of David's men knew what they were willing to die for, because they had a clearly defined goal of what they were living for and what they were going after. We know what we'll die for because we've got a clearly defined picture of what we are living for, what we're going after, what we are pursuing in God, what we're going to give our life to, what we're going to expend our energy and our finances and our time and our resource and our capacity towards. And I'm going to put up that quote we spoke about last week from Mark Bedison in that book, if we can go to the next slide. Quit living as if the purpose of your life is to arrive safely at death. Run to the roar. You don't die when your heart stops beating. You die when your heart stops skipping a beat in pursuit of the dream that God has put in you. And last week we looked at some definitions of faith that we can move forward in, in confidence in God. And here is the first one. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. We looked at that. Faith is because if you are in God's kingdom and you're not willing to look foolish, that is foolish. Because faith is spelt as risk. The second one we looked at is this. Faith is the process of unlearning our fears. Heard an amazing testimony um, in the latter part of this week of someone who said for 70 years of their life, they haven't been able to sleep with the light off because of fear. Not in the room directly, but on the porch or in a, a bathroom. Or there had to be a light on because they'd been in fear of the dark. And they said that after we shared last week that love is fearlessness, and that perfect love drives out fear. I love that they didn't just, it wasn't a miraculous moment, it, something didn't just shift in the meeting, but something shifted within this person where they thought that's truth, and I'm gonna apply faith to that, and they went home that night, and they turned off the light, and for the first time in 70 plus years, they've slept with the lights off, and not in fear. See, there's something about saying, I'm gonna take hold of something in faith, and I'm gonna apply this, and I'm gonna, press ahead in it. I'm not going to just sit back passively and wait, but I'm going to be purposeful. And that's what this individual did. Faith is taking the first step before God reveals the second step. What's your first step? So let's focus on the next one. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hebrews 11, verse 1. 
And you see, this is where fighting for your dream starts. You've got to know what you're fighting for. And Jesus is the epitome of this. When we look in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. How do you endure nine-inch nails through your hands and your feet? What positions you or prompts you to want to do that? And not just endure it, but in the midst of enduring something that would have seemed so shameful, you scorn the shame of it because there's something bigger than the shame that can get placed on you. How do you do that? I want you to say you have a dream because Jesus had a dream, and I'm looking at it here today. You are the dream and the desire and the purpose that he had in his heart, and he was willing to go to a cross, and it was worth it because he wanted to reconcile you to relationship, friendship, and intimacy with Him and to the Father. You're worth it. You are a dream outworking and living out what He saw before Him. He is willing to die for that. The dream was your salvation and my salvation. And so He had to become sinless and go to the cross so that we could become righteous and go home and live in relationship with the Father. You've got to define success. Point number two, You have to take it one step at a time. Say to someone next to you, take it one step at a time. Say to the other person next to you, life is like a box of chocolates. There's wisdom that comes from Forrest Gump in this sermon because if life is like a box of chocolates, then dreams are like a box of Lego. You see, the picture in the front of the box is the dream. And this is a lighthouse. I know that it's a prophetic word. We've had spoken over harvest. We used to have lighthouses, um, pictures all around the building. Uh, As this was put up was the dream of the leadership, that we would be a city on a hill, that we would be a light, that people would be able to find safety and refuge and, and have clarity for moving forward and purpose, that we'd be safe harbor that would propel people out onto the waters of what God wants to do. And so there was the sense of being a lighthouse. But here's the thing. What we find with Lego is even though we see the dream, the picture on the front of the box, it doesn't come out fully assembled. Take it one step at a time. 2,065 pieces in this puzzle. Not puzzle, Lego set that I got. I I was looking at the other Lego set, which was 10,000 pieces. I couldn't even carry that thing um, to bring here today. So here is one of the lighthouse, this dream that we had for our house. And it's a 2,065-step process. Here's the thing. As you journey and pursue your dream in God, you're going to overestimate what you can achieve in one year. But you're going to underestimate what God can achieve through you in 10 years. It might take longer, and it might be harder, and it might be more of a process than you anticipated. But the process of pursuing the dream is more important than the outcome. And it's less about accomplishing the dream and it's more about who you are becoming in the process. So we all want fully assembled Lego kits. Well, not my son. He wants me to painstakingly place every piece on the other, which is why this is not my one. I'll show you my one later, my my Lego set. Do I have it? Yes. This is my Lego set. It's for nine plus. Limited pieces because I was a little bit of a gamer when I was younger and I wanted cheat codes and I wanted uh, the shortcuts and there ain't none of that in reality. So let me ask a question. Who has a dream to visit Paris? (laughs) Aldatha, yours was the hand I saw first. 
This is a Lego set of Paris. Come get your Lego set. And, and unfortunately, it's within Rob's capacity to put together. There's your, your Paris Lego set. Dream to go to Paris. And I'm sure you have that dream because you, there's a desire in you to enjoy the romantic city and possibly sneak a kiss, Rob, on the Eiffel Tower. Talking about a kiss in France. Not a French kiss, just in case anyone's wondering, ask questions. Wait for the dream. Did you know when you look at the Eiffel Tower, it in itself was a dream? A man by the name of Alfred Eiffel dreamt it in 1889. He said, I want to propose that uh, right in that center of where it is that a 980-foot tower would be built, and it would be in that time the tallest building in the world. And he had a dream that became a reality that we all get to see today that was born out of someone's heart. We get to see a desire and a dream that's actually become tangible and physical. And it was a shared dream because he needed 72 scientists, engineers, and mathematicians to make that dream possible. Without them, it wouldn't have happened. And then there were 300 carpenters and riveters and hammermen who put together this 18,038-piece puzzle of wrought iron. And then there was the acrobatic team that had to come and train those men who were working on those high beams in the midst of the wind and all that was going on, how to do it safely. And it took two years, two months, and five days to complete that dream. But it was a dream that generations longer get to enjoy, that speaks something that communicates something, that creates something that people get to enjoy. You see, the dream doesn't just burst out of the Lego set and it's not all just set up. And your dream in the same way, even though it might not feel instant and you might be finding yourself in the disadvantage as you start to pursue that desire that God has placed within your heart, taking hold of it, not letting go, maybe taking those 2,065 steps as I mentioned with my lighthouse here, you need to start to allow yourself to get a clear vision of what success is, that picture on the front of the box. And then you've got to know this. This is what um, that scripture says, if we can put it up. The next scripture, I think. Faith shows the reality. This is the New Living Translation. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence we cannot see. Faith shows us the reality of the dream that we have. Even though the evidence of what we can't see, those pieces in the box, we can't see them yet. And so faith is this, knowing here's my dream, the picture on the box, and I'm going to take time to take the pieces out. I'm going to have the patience to start to place them together so that this dream can start to become a reality. Because how many of you can uh, uh, just agree with me that you don't get it in shape one workout at a time? You don't get out of debt one payment at a time. You don't get a graduate degree one class at a time. You don't produce an album one rehearsal at a time. You don't get that promotion one project at a time. You don't get the game trophy one practice at a time. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take perseverance. It's, got to, it's going to take reminding yourself of God's purposes. It's going to take pursuing His grace in the midst of it. And that is going to allow you to start to see this thing coming together and what God's placed within you. And can we, can we as individuals, in a day of impatience, can we start to, with God's help, actually enjoy the process of what He's wanting to do through us and what He's wanting to do in us? Number three, get around the right people. Get around the right people. Look to someone next to you and say, you are the right person. It's a little preposition, but it has huge implications. 2 Samuel 23 verse 9 says this, 
Eliezer was with David when they taunted the Philistines. He was in the right place at the right time with the right person. And let me clarify and just allow us to recognize this. It's not about you or me. It's about God's glory. But I'm also going to tell you that God is intentionally wanting to surprise you and set you up. And there's no question in my mind that he's building your spiritual resume, as it were, that he is building your network, that he is maximizing you because he wants to see you maximized in kingdom purpose, and that he's divinely connecting you to the right people if you allow him to lead you and do that. I 100% believe that. Because, and here's the thing, and I said it last week, one of the, the best ways to discover your dream is to serve someone else's. If you're in the place now where you say, I don't, just, I don't really have a dream, then get alongside someone who does, and something contagious is going to happen. That's what Eliezer did. Eliezer was with David, and we see it throughout Scripture. Joshua was with Moses when he climbed Mount Sinai and led the Israelites through into the Promised Land. Elisha was with Elijah when that fiery chariot came, and he got taken up, and out of the withness, there became the double portion and mantle that he got clothed with. And then Ruth was with Naomi, unwilling to be separated to the point where it seemed that she had lost everything. But instead in that moment, she received a husband named Boaz and had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, who would have been the greatest king Israel had ever seen. And out of his lineage came Jesus. There's something that happens as we get with the right people. We see it pays dividends. And so I, I love that we get to be part of this community. There's a whole lot of right people in the right place at the right time. And I'm so grateful for that. You need to find your people. And if this isn't your people that you want to do life with, that you want to be challenged with, that you want to be provoked together in the pur purposes of God, that you want to uh, encourage, uh, find courage with, if this is not that, find that community and get planted and flourish. But if this is that for you, thank you for being that for us. We love what God is building of a lighthouse here and each step and each piece of the process he's putting together. Number four, you need to adopt a growth mindset. This is my eight-year-old speaking to us loudly, little Mitchell. I remember another moment in our kitchen. Amazing discussions happened there. And Leanne and I were talking and it was just me and Leanne in the kitchen. And then my little eight-year-old, um, the Lord has blessed him with amazing hearing. Amazing hearing. He was somewhere else in the household. He heard what we were speaking about, and his encouragement to both of us was, you need to get a growth mindset. Well, that is a growth mindset. I can't remember exactly. And here's the thing. We need a growth mindset. It's this kind of understanding that we see people throughout history that anybody can do just about anything if they apply um, energy, time, and focus to that. And there's negatives as well, because we know the Tower of Babylon, but there is this thing that has been put within us as humanity. And are there exceptions? I mean, yes, we can't all do that. If you forefoot nothing, even if you practice the principle of 10,000 hours to be an expert, you're probably not going to be a springbuck lock. It's, it's just not necessarily going to happen. But if you're willing to fight till your hand freezes to the sword, if you're willing to devote your lives to something, then look out because you might be the next Cheslin Colby that sets the World Cup alight when people said you're too small to play on the wing and now he's become the standard for South Africa and one of the most highly paid players. Because there's something about what God can do when people start to allow themselves to go beyond themselves and find themselves in the moreness of who he is. There's that stretching of capacity. 
And you've heard it says, it's not about the size of the dog and the fight, but what? It's the size of the fight and the dog. 1939, a little bit similar things were happening in uh, Eastern Europe block as we're experiencing today. 1939, Finland was a huge underdog in the Winter War. The Soviet army was three times larger with 30 times as many aircrafts, 100 times as many tanks, but the Finnish troops held their ground, much like Eliezer in the story we're reading about. Actually, in 1940, Time magazine wrote this, if we can put the next slide up. They wrote this. The Finns have something they call Sisu. It is a compound of bravado and bravery, of ferocity and tenacity. It's the ability to keep fighting over most people would have quit after most people would have quit, and to fight with the will to win. I love that. Sometimes we're fighting, but we're resigned to losing, but we're fighting. They are fighting with the will to win. The Finns translate Sisu as the Finnish spirit, but it is much more gutful word than that. It's a deeper word. It's, it's a more from the center of who they are as a people. The New York Times ran a similar feature, and it said this, a typical Finn is an obstinate sort of fellow. Maybe we, we know some people who might be Finnish. Um, obstinate sort of fellow who believe in getting the better out of bad fortune by proving that he can stand worse. I like that. Sisu. It's this inner fortitude. Sisu. It's this will to fight. Sisu. It's this unwillingness to give in or give up. Sisu. It's this fierce resolve. It's this gut action. It's this grit. Really, it's just the word that defines what it means to be a KZNer but it's just got a whole lot of definitions there. I think Eliezer was Finnish even though he was Jewish, at least in his mindset, because he was saying, I'm just gonna press ahead, I'm gonna hold ground, I'm gonna take hold of all that God has for me. And actually, there's a book called Mindsets, and as we speak about growth mindset, Carol Dweck writes about this in that book. She said there's a, a distinction between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, and we've heard it before, but my son Mitch had to remind me, so I'm reminding you. See if you recognize yourself. A fixed mindset believes that our qualities are fixed and there's not much I can do to change it. This is just the way I am. A growth mindset believes that our basic qualities can be cultivated through effort. That in God as believers, anybody and anyone can do anything if they partner with what the Spirit's doing. A fixed mindset tries to validate itself. I'm always on trial, so I've got to always be defensive. A growth mindset stretches itself, it's always learning, it's incorporating them all. A fixed mindset is focused on the outcome. It's focused on the outcome. I will celebrate once I get there. I love this, a growth mindset is focused on the inputs. I have done this much and I'm not there yet, but I wanna celebrate the little of what has been done, which will energize me for the more that I've still got to do. It's more about the inputs than the outputs. A fixed mindset, when you fail, you're a failure. It's your identity. A growth mindset, when you failed, it's just a failed attempt. I'll get up, I'll go again, I'll try a little bit harder, I'll learn a little bit more, I'll put in a bit more effort, I'll rely on God more, pray more, fast more, pray in tongues more, whatever it might be. It's a pressing into the more. And here's the thing, with God's help, there's always growth, there's always more, there's always the advancing of his kingdom within you and you advancing with the kingdom that's taking ground. A secular picture of this would be if you enjoy the Olympics. I know that uh, we're getting ready for them not too far away. But if you enjoy the swimming and the freestyle, there was a gold medalist named Rowdy Gaines, and uh, he was an example of a growth mindset. In 1984, he won the freestyle, 
uh, in the 100 meter with a time of 49.8 seconds. He had been training for it for eight years. The reason being that the US had boycotted the last Olympics in 1980. So he trained for this race for eight years and it took less than a minute. He estimated that he swam 20,000 miles in 50 meter increments. That's what he had done after, over that time training. He says, I swam around the world for a race that lasted 41, uh, 49 seconds. And how did he do it? It's by applying this growth mindset. He said this, at every practice, I would try to beat myself. See, here's the thing. He wasn't trying to beat everyone else. He was trying to beat himself. But by beating himself, he was beating everyone else, and he became the best freestyle swimmer in the world to receive the gold medal. It's this growth mindset at play. And what I want us to get today, even as I'm bringing this, is this, a, this is not a self-help message, a go out and work harder message. As I've said before, this is a with the Holy Spirit's help message. This is about stewardship. This is about recognizing what God's placed in your heart and what he's wanting to do through you, not only for you, but for your friends and your family, for those around you. This is about recognizing that you've got time in him, that he's given you talent, that he's given you treasure. We can go to the next slide. This is about realizing God's given you potential. Potential is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. It's your way of honoring him. It's your way of appreciating him. It's your way of stewarding what he has given you. It's your way of partnering with faith, with the seed of faith that he's placed within you. So make the most of it. It doesn't say in the word that he is going to say to us, well said, my good and faithful servant. All the things you're speaking about. He's not going to say, well said, my good and faithful servant. The one for me is thinking. He's not going to say, well thought, my good and faithful servant. All the good thoughts that go around. What he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. There's something you've got to do in faith, partnering with his purposes to bring across a glorifying of who he is. And we know the acronym, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. But what do these riches in Christ look like in our lives? Dallas Willard said this, if we can put the next quote up. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action, earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. So we don't have an attitude that we've got to earn. We've got an attitude that we get to receive. But in our receiving of his grace, it activates something within us that looks like we've been set on fire by the very same grace that he's poured upon us so lavishly. That's what it looks like, lived out. Number five. Say this to someone, fight till your hand freezes to the sword. Now, I don't often quote Nietzsche in my sermons, and I probably won't again, but this is quite a provoking statement, a little bit sarcastic, that he said, with everything perfect, we do not ask how it came to be. Instead, we rejoice in the present fact as though it came out of the ground by magic, and I think that's true of success. You look at people that you admire and that you want to be like, and you think, we want the success they have without the sacrifice. You know, I don't necessarily want to go through all the years of hard work they've done, but I sure want to have everything that they've accomplished and achieved and built up. Anyone else know that? Is it just me that's sharing a bit of inner world here? Here's the thing. Success isn't always sexy. It's often sweaty. And success isn't always glamorous, it's often gritty. 
And there's something that we need to realize in God that, that we realize this. We don't believe in magic, as that quote says, but we believe in favor. Favor is God's unfair advantage. Favor is what God can do for you that you can't do for yourself. Now, we don't believe in magic, but we do believe in anointing. Anointing is supernatural gifting that's beyond your human ability. Anointing is divine knowledge that goes beyond your, your human wisdom and intellect. Anointing is supernatural power that enables you to go beyond your own strength, capacity, and ability to do it on your own. That's what happens when we partner with God's anointing. And God has favored you, God has anointed you, God has given you potential, God has given you time, God has given you treasures, God has given you uh, all of these things in Him, this talent. He has given this to you freely. You are God's gift. You are God's dream, and you are His gift back to this world. For God so loved that He gave, and He's still giving, sons and daughters. But what are you doing with what He's given? Is it honoring Him? Is it creating those stories? Are you famous in your own home? And are you famous beyond? You see, 2,000 years ago, this is what Jesus did with his dream, with his desire, with his, his purpose. He came and he said this. He stood on a rock and he said, I will build my church, even as that puzzle piece there. He had a picture and he knew what it would take. I will build my church, every single block in place, precept upon precept. I will build my church. And as I build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he was willing to see it through. He was willing to live for some, die for something because he was living for that thing. And he hung on a cross for you and for me. And then he left a tomb empty. And as we mentioned earlier with some of what's been happening and we've heard about people who've lost life, I want to say this. Then he walked out of that tomb and death was swallowed up in life in that moment. And as he came out of that tomb, we had been encouraged. Pray that his kingdom comes and that his will is done. And in the midst of hearing about war and in the midst of hearing about coups and in the midst of hearing about failed states and failed power stations and failed sewage works or whatever other failings we might be hearing about from News 24, long before the demise of what News 24 is saying, I want to say this, there is a kingdom and there is a king and is advancing. And if we would go 2,000 years ago, we might have thought that kingdom was the Roman Empire. And we would have bet on that lasting till today. But today there is no Roman Empire. But those 120 people who were hiding in fear in a locked upper room have now become billions across the globe. And there is an advancing kingdom that is worshiping and glorifying him all over. And the question that I bring to us today, to you and to me, is this. Are you living as those set, upon, set on fire by the grace of God, active in what He's doing, pursuing the dream, the desire He's placed within you so that He might be glorified? Chase some lions. Face some ridiculous odds. Fight till your hand freezes to your dream and your destiny takes hold of you. Journey the process. Navigate the failures. Be fearless in love and let your life be an invitation for God to show up and show off the wonder of who He is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for Your favor, Your grace, and Your anointing. I thank You, Lord, that each one here today was a dream on your heart, and that you place desires in every heart. Lord, I just pray that you would start to help us to give clarity to that which we are called to live for. 
I pray that you'll start to ignite dreams and fan into flame. I pray that we'll be caught up with what we're wanting to take hold of in you. And then I pray that you give us courage and that you stretch our capacity and that even though there are perceived disadvantages, Lord, we have every advantage in you. And I pray, Lord, where the enemy is try to come, and where there's lack of dream and hope, it results in hopelessness. And Lord, I come against hopelessness and depression and anxiety, feeling that we have no purpose, uh, design, or potential. I come against that in the name of Jesus, and I rebuke that. But I thank you, Lord, that uh, we come alive to the hope and dream that you have within us. So Lord, I thank you that life swallows up every aspect of what would seem like death in Jesus' mighty name. And Lord, for us as a community, I pray that we would be that lighthouse and that we would be those that set forth from safe harbor to be dangerous for the king and the kingdom in every area you lead us. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.